think there is a really interesting question as as to what is what is our army for now? And I think you know the sensible thing to do to that would be to have a really frank and a really open conversation about it. I think Britain has a real problem having that kind of honest conversation about its military. A lot of that was intrinsically based on this Northern Ireland experience. This idea that at some kind of atavistic level, the British Army had an experience of counterinsurgency operations that somehow kind of imbued in the DNA of the British military was um, an expertise in these things. And, and that unraveled in Iraq. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI. And for this episode, I sat down for a conversation with Simon Acom. He is a journalist whose new book, The Changing of the Guard, tells the story of the British Army since 9-11. It's sort of a biography of the army covering the years of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. As you'll hear Simon describe, the book is at times critical of the British Army. But the book and this episode delve into some really important discussions about the relationship between the army and the society it serves, about the challenges that it struggled with in Iraq and Afghanistan, some of which the U.S. Army also found itself challenged by, and some that were unique, and questions of accountability, identity, and more. It is a great conversation that I hope you enjoy. Before we get to it, a couple notes. First, if you aren't yet subscribed to the MWI podcast, find it on your favorite podcast app. And if you have a second, please leave a rating or give it a review, which really helps us reach new listeners. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Simon Acom. Simon, thank you so much for joining this episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. So you are the author of a new book. Uh, it's called The Changing of the Guard, the British Army since 9-11. Um, you know, first, I guess I should say it, it's, you know, it has been maybe controversial is the is the right word to use. Um, it's released in the UK. We'll touch on that. We'll certainly talk about that. But it sort of tells the story of this evolution of uh, of the British Army over the past nearly two decades of conflict, um, you know, and it, it is almost sort of a biography of the service, um, but also a kind of a, you know, with reflections on, on British society more broadly and, and, um, and also a critique, um, a, a, a pretty potent critique at times. Uh, but you also kind of interweave your own experiences into uh, into the narrative, uh, beginning with uh, you held what's called a gap year commission in the British Army. Um, can you kind of, first off, you know, just by way of introducing uh, listeners to you, can you kind of describe that program and, and what your involvement with the Army entailed? Yeah, of course. So this was when I was 18 uh, in 2003, 2004. So at that time, the Army ran a a program that was variously called a short service limited commission or a gap year commission. So the idea was that you had to get a, a high pass at their selection centers. It was more difficult to get than to get regular entry to Sandhurst. And then you did a short course at Sandhurst that was similar to what army doctors or lawyers did. And then you were in a regiment, but you, you couldn't go on operations because you'd had minimal training. And you did between five and 18 months, I think, but most people did about a year. And the idea was that it would take a a cadre of pretty highly selected people, some of whom might go back to the military, but a lot of whom would not. And I think for me, I was I was fairly sure I wasn't going to go back. I mean, I'd had um, 
what drew me to this really was uh, when I was at high school in Cambridge, we had a cadet force and we had a teacher who was very inspirational. And it, it drew me that way. And so I did this as a as a year when I was 18. I then studied uh, English at university and I then had the opportunity to go to the United States. So I had a Fulbright scholarship. I went to Columbia J School. I worked at New York Times. And I became a journalist. So I worked for Reuters uh, and The Economist in West Africa for Newsweek in the UK. And uh, 10 years later, I had this idea to see what had become of the army because my, my military experiences were fleeting. I mean, I'd spent um, you know nine months in the army when I was a teenager. But I realized that that period that I had seen was a historically significant juncture. So it was just after the invasion of Iraq, before the southern Afghanistan tours. And... I realized that the army had gone through this huge change. And what I also realized was that there was a, an opportunity to write a book that was about the British army, but was really a book um, about Britain. I wanted to write something, I suppose it was in the tradition of American style narrative nonfiction writing that I'd been exposed to as a journalist, and which I'm familiar with through my magazine writing work. And I got to Afghanistan in 2014 on assignment for The Economist and then, and then wrote it after that. Um, so yeah, it's, it's about what uh, those wars did to the army. And by extension, it's about what uh, that means about Britain. And a lot of it is about our relationship with the United States as well. So when you, you returned, you went to Afghanistan to, to cover the war as a journalist, when you, you know, when you decided, okay, I'm, I'm not going to go back to the army. I'm going to you know finish my undergraduate degree. I'm going to get into journalism. Um, was that, I mean, did, were you particularly drawn to Afghanistan? Did you have to ask to be sent there or? Yeah, it's complicated. I mean, I, I did a brief trip to Afghanistan in 2014. So I was never a, a correspondent who was based there or anything like that. So my, I, I worked in, in Africa mostly. That was that was my thing. Um, the way that it worked, and this is, this is kind of intrinsically connected to some of the, the complexity that's been uh, getting this book published, is that the British military, certainly in comparison to the United States, has... Um, very restrictive policies for for writers and for journalists approaching it, and generally um, the way it works is that there's a there's a, a transactional relationship for access. So that if you embed or you you get to talk to people who are serving, the military authorities then have pre-publication oversight of what you're uh, what you're publishing. And officially, that's on grounds of operational security and personnel security, but unofficially, it tends to stuff gets heavily redacted. So it's completely different from the way the US does this. So I knew that to do this project, I needed to go to Afghanistan. Um, but I also knew that if I if I kind of entered into, you have to sign a contract with the army if you're, if you're going to do this authorized book thing. And if I did that, I spoke to people that operate that way. And I knew ultimately that that essentially it would get gutted as a, as a piece of work. But I was able to find a, a way through whereby I I had a relationship with The Economist and I uh, I didn't embed for them. So I went to write a piece that was about the end of British operations in Helmand and was about um, Army 2020. It was a big restructuring. And that had to work within the kind of restrictive covenant for the embed. But the way that the paperwork meant is that they didn't have a subsequent purview on the book. So essentially, it was a way to kind of navigate that piece. Okay. So, um, you know, I can't tell you how many uh, articles that I read, particularly submissions uh, to the Modern War Institute, uh, you know, submissions for us to publish that include some variation of the phrase, you know, after two decades of counterinsurgency in Iraq and Afghanistan or two decades of America's post 9-11 wars. Um, and that's that's true. 
but there's also, you know, if you look at it, I, I came into the army in the mid two thousands, um, right around the time of the Iraq surge. That was my first deployment. Um, it, we were very much oriented on Iraq. After that, we started looking back at Afghanistan again. Um, you know, we, we started withdrawing troops from Iraq and Afghanistan was sort of the, the, the center of gravity, sort of speak for, from a kind of strategic perspective. Um, we then started looking back in Iraq. We were talking beforehand. I had spent some time with the website war on the rocks. And when we launched that in, in the summer of 2013, you know, ISIS became for the first year, year and a half of that website's existence. That was what we were talking about. That was what we were focused on. Um, we've shifted, you know, further and further. And now we're talking about reorienting, reorienting toward, you know, great power competition and preparedness for large scale, uh, combat operations. So when you really look at that 20 years, it's, it's a series of phases and there is this sort of evolutionary thread, um, that runs to it, but it's really hard to sort of, uh, define what made you think, Hey, you know what, this is an appropriate time. This, you know, in 2014, like you said, you wanted to write this book enough had changed since say nine 11, but especially since, uh, since your, uh, your time in the army, you know, what, what, what made you say there's, there's a story to be told there? I think the Brits were pulling out. So at the end of 2014, the, the Brits, I mean, literally pulled everyone out of Helmand. I mean, I write about it in the book, the, the last man into the last helicopter. So there was, there was an end point with that. But I, I agree with you that it, it's trying to shape these 20 years of work I want to pull out is, is complicated. And the approach I took was to not try and do everything. So I didn't, there are books that have been written that are essentially kind of chronologies for every British tour in Iraq and Afghanistan. This is what happened. This is what happened. And I think those are those are worthwhile projects and I, I use them a lot as sources. But my feeling, and again, this is informed by the kind of um, journalism that I do, is that generally by zooming in, you zoom out, as it were, by focusing on a on a relatively tight group of people over a defined time period, you can write something that is much more engaging, but also can hit those macro questions without being kind of bound to the straitjacket of chronology. So the way the book works is it's in five sections. It's bracketed by brief pieces of uh, first-person writing. So about uh, my, my brief experiences in the army when I was 18 and about going back 10 years later. But those pieces are kind of self-contained. So one is about a tank regiment gearing up and going to war in 2003. The second is about an operation in Iraq with a British unit, uh, the Black Watch, in 2004. So the first time they were moved outside uh, southeastern Iraq. And that's laid in the context of the reorganization of the infantry. It was a huge bureaucratic fight. The third section is about the changing way that soldiers told their stories. So it takes in memoir and painting, but a lot of it's about technology. It's about the advent of the YouTube war film. And, and essentially, I look at it in a system of incentives. So what these informal incentives of uh, films and so forth were, were doing and how that compared with the army's formal incentives via promotion and via medals. Uh, the fourth is the Iraq endgame, so that they're kind of denouement Basra for the Brits and the fifth is about accountability and the idea was that I wasn't trying to do everything you know that these were these were discrete and in many ways self-contained although there are people who come up in between them and that by doing that I could tell a story you know I think I think the fundamental kind of heart of this book is about what happened with the end for the British in in Basra but I wanted it to I really wanted it to be accessible to someone who had no who was coming at this completely cold, knew nothing about the military. And also that, you know, it would, you know, we, we kept every acronym we could out of it. Like we tried to re write it in the, 
in a way that was credible to people who had been there, but this was this was accessible. And that that's reflected in the way that it looks, the cover decision, everything like that. I really wanted this to try and jump the fence of military history, as it were. So given that, that you wanted it to have the widest possible reach and, and reach a broad audience, uh, I have, I guess, sort of a kind of a process question. Did you have a specific audience in mind while you were actually writing the book? It's a good question. I think part of me felt that this was for people who were of my generation. So I was 16 on 9-11. A lot of my friends from school, had I, I dabbled in the army. A lot of my friends had, had gone on to it. So there was certainly part of that. But I think I... It's a tricky one, not not particularly clearly, but I knew I didn't want it to be, you know, just men with an interest in the army, if that makes sense. I wanted women to read this. And I wanted it to I wanted to make a claim, I don't know whether that's been achieved, that this is this is a book about ourselves as a country, as much as it is about um about the military and about those wars. Yeah. And I have several questions that I want to ask you about that because I think that that's fascinating that the way that you use sort of um yeah, the story of of the military as sort of a stand-in to kind of better understand some broader sort of societal dyna- uh, dynamics uh, that have been occurring over the course of the past nearly two decades. Um, is there, you know, there, we have in the U.S. military, especially certainly at the height of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, the first uh, you know decade of of of, of this century. Um, there was a phrase people would always we use the phrase over there. Um, it was sort of a stand-in for it meant either Iraq or Afghanistan. You'd also sometimes hear references to the sandbox. Um, but in many ways, uh, an armed services identity is so deeply wrapped up in the conflicts that it is currently engaged in. And if it's not a conflict, then the conflicts that it's currently preparing for. Um, the UK military had an experience that 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 set it apart from from. The U.S. military, for instance, or for example, and that's Northern Ireland, which, you know, m- and correct me if I'm wrong, but my perspective is that that was sort of a defining component of of the British Army's identity for a long time, and then it sort of shifted to Iraq and Afghanistan, presumably. Um, how 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 significant is that? Uh, in in you know, after writing this book, how how big a sort of turning point was that? I think it's enormous. Um, just to give some context to people who perhaps aren't familiar with the history, that the British troops deployed to Northern Ireland at the end of the 1960s and were there for 37 years. So all the way through the 1970s, 1980s, into the 1990s when, when the ceasefires began. For, for large parts of the British Army, particularly for the infantry and for special forces, Ireland was the defining experience. So the way there's a book from the 1980s which quotes a, an instructor, an NCO instructor saying, it's not a very good war, but it's the only war we've got. And it was hugely, it was a really defining feature of the, the British Army's identity. And the other thing I think about that pre-2003 point, and this, I mean, you know, this is an American audience, I think it's really important to discuss this, frankly, is the, the Brits had a really, I think, very problematic attitude towards the American military. And I think the way to understand it is a classic little sibling system, it kind of, you know, real. And I, I write about in this book. So, you know, at that 2003 period, the, the British Army really defined itself in kind of binary opposition to the Americans. Like, they are crass. We have we are smart. You know, we have style. They have mass. All, all this kind of thing, which, you know, if, if you look at it now, it's, I mean, it's pretty pretty difficult to take and that was a lot of that was intrinsically based on this northern ireland experience so this idea that at some 
kind of atavistic level, the British Army had an experience of counterinsurgency operations. And, and that it, there was a thread that ran further back. So it went to Malaya, it went to Kenya, this idea that, that somehow kind of imbued in the DNA of the British military was um, an expertise in these things that we had and the Americans didn't have. And and that unraveled in Iraq. I mean, that, that really did, did fall to pieces. And it concluded with this situation in Basra where the British ended up during the height of the surge, really making a deal with uh, the militias um, in order to, to get out. And then that, that all collapsed. And it concluded in this extraordinary series of events where a, a US Marine two-star walked into a British headquarters. And although the, the exact phrasing is disputed, basically said, like, we're here to stop you failing. And, and that, I think, in a sense, I think that is why this is such an engaging narrative, because it's a really, it's a really primal story. It's about pride and pride coming before the fall. And and what has been very interesting, actually, since the book has come out, and there's been, you know, there's been so much heat about this in the UK, and a lot of discussion about it in social media. And there was um, someone on Twitter at the weekend, and there was the Atlantic ran an excerpt over the weekend of the, the pivotal bit at the end. There's a guy who was in a, this is Operation Charge of Nights in 2008, but a, a Brit who was in an American headquarters who just talked about, you know, how embarrassing it was to be wearing British uniform, and Americans coming up and being like, "What? what's up with you guys? Like, you know, why don't you bring your A game? And I think that, you know, that's why this is so fascinating. Because I, I saw, you know, it, I saw that culture, that like, you know, the Americans don't know what they're doing, all of that. And um, that really, really changed. But I think, you know, that the other another thing on Twitter today of a story that apparently a, um, a, a senior US commander banned the mention of Northern Ireland in their headquarters in, in Iraq because it was just, you know, it was just ceasing to be credible. And I think another point, that actually is interesting is that a lot of what the British Army did in Northern Ireland was pretty successful, but a lot of those lessons were actually not applied. So Northern Ireland had a, a permanent headquarters at Lisbon, so there was continuity of command. There were units on two-year consistent tours there, which didn't happen in um, in Iraq. And there were also force densities were enormously higher, and there was a cultural understanding, right, the same language and, and things like that. So yeah, Northern Ireland and, and the, the long legacy of that, I think, is pivotal. The U.S. military obviously had a, you know, the the largest uh, coalition force presence in both countries at, you know, to differing degrees at differing times. But um, at its height, the battle rhythm was something of concern. It was something that was not sustainable long term, but was sort of accepted. There was a, there was some risk that was assumed to essentially have these one year on, one year off uh, rotations, which will break a force eventually. And you know there was there was clear acknowledgement that that was unsustainable. At the same time, that level of sort of commitment, um, you know, I, I don't, I, I think has also sort of a cohering effect in terms of of establishing that. Um, you know, esprit de corps and, uh, and, you know, a firm sense of at least self-perception of, of, of identity, uh, on an institutional level for a service and all the way, you know, through a unit level and all the way down to kind of individuals, um, as we have drawn down in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, you wonder if there is sort of, if, if there's the risk that then an armed services sort of casting about looking for trying to rediscover sort of purpose is that something that over the past especially since 2014 when you've been working on this book that you've seen yeah i think hugely so i mean i i had this big piece in the in the ft at the weekend in the financial times magazine that was about masculinity in the army but it kind of raised this point the, the way it was structured was it it talks about 
you know, what I had kind of seen in Germany in 2003, which was a pretty ossified post-Cold War army, because I was in a cavalry regiment, so you know, they didn't go to Northern Ireland. That was the one bit of the army that didn't go. It was too expensive to retrain. And I wrote a lot about how there's this tremendous, I agree with you, like streamlining effect. So an enormous... Uh, the enormously emotionally significant experience of combat for people deployed, but also much further back in headquarters and doctrine jobs and equipment that people felt they were all on the same team. And how that has, you know, the, the wars, with the exception of special forces for the Brits, largely stopped in, in 2014. And I think there's this real question of what has happened since then. The way I wrote about it is, you know, they've, you know, what, what are they going to Sandhurst for? What is the draw? It's not to fight, which it was for the previous generation. It's also not to get drunk and go skiing, which speaking kind of bluntly was what drew a lot of people to the army before then. And I think there is, I think the problem that has happened in Britain is that the army has, these deployments came to an end, but there has not been a proper kind of wash up and discussion about where things go. And it, 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 what is very interesting is how that fits in what is going on in terms of defence cuts. So another, the army is probably going to be cut by another 10,000 troops in the integrated review, which will take it to 70,000, which is very, very small. And I think actually what puts a lot of how, what Britain did in these wars into real perspective is that the, the battle that was being fought at the top of the military was one of, of institutional preservation, really. And I, I think that can sound very cynical, but I don't think it's surprising that these people were doing what they felt was best for the army as an institution. And that meant going to war at America's side in 2003 at divisional scale to have credibility. When Iraq went sour, it meant expanding the Helmand deployment. There's a, there's a famous uh, quote, which is, again, it's disputed by supposedly from um, a senior British general to the British ambassador in Afghanistan saying that if we don't send our infantry battalions to Afghanistan, they, we will lose them. It's used them or lose them. And I think in a sense what has happened now is it's become, it's used them and lose them, that these, the army is being, is being seriously cut down. And I think there is a really interesting question as, as to what is, what is our army for now? And I think, you know, the sensible thing to do to that would be to have a really frank and a really open conversation about it and about what happened and what went well. But for a lot of the, the, structural reasons that I explore in the book, uh, I think Britain has a real problem having that kind of honest conversation about its military. And so I want to ask you another sort of uh, question that's sort of based on something that we've seen in the US military, and that is a sort of generational divide, which there always is, you know, between, especially in the officer corps, between the junior officers and relatively more senior officers and where that, where that dividing line falls kind of shifts. But when I was in, uh, I was in Baghdad in 2008, actually, uh, at the time that, that you discussed, in fact, we had, um, uh, several of the Iraqi army units and, and an Iraqi national police unit from our area of operations in East Baghdad that were loaded up onto aircraft and, south, and right. sent down. Yep. Um, sent down to Basra. And so we had suddenly uh, uh, three battalions, I believe, of uh, Kurdish forces that had to come down and which caused, you know, its own problems to sort of fill the gap. But um, so in 2008, while I was while I was deployed, there was something that circulated, um, you know, everybody I knew saw it. Uh, there was a, a very long document that depending on who you asked was either you know brilliant and insightful or you know the rantings of a disaffected junior officer um, but i believe it was an army captain that wrote it and he distinguished between what he called 
um, the '90s Officer Corps and the you know at the time the GWAT Officer Corps back when we used to still call it the Global War on Terror. Um, and he said that the '90s officers saw the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan as essentially filling the same purpose that rotations at our combat training centers at NTC and JRTC served before that. That was where you earned a, the, your, your, it was your chance to shine, to earn a positive evaluation, to, uh, to get, you know, promoted below the zone, um, and to, to sort of make a name for yourself and separate yourself from your peers. And, and he said, the GWAT officers see this as something different because this is all we've known. And to us, it is just a war. It is a matter of life and death. And it's just a war. It's not an opportunity to do that. And, um, but there was, there was, he identified something that I think some people felt, which was, um, you know, you have senior officers who are, you know, making statements through public affairs officers, very senior officers that are, you know, that were testifying to Congress that were um, speaking to the press and saying, hey, we're really turning the tide. And then you had junior officers that are saying, what? what war are you watching? Um, and I'm not, you know, suggesting that either one of those perspectives was accurate, but just highlighting the fact that they were very different. Was there anything similar in the British military? Was there sort of a generational divide? You know, there was a, a book that I really enjoyed reading uh, probably a decade ago called the junior officers, junior officers reading club. I think it was called by a British mm-hmm. army officer, um, that didn't make that point, but yeah, by, by Patrick, Patrick Hennessy. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And he, uh, he didn't, you know, specifically make that point, but just the fact that the book would be called this and he could, you know, there was certainly a sort of a, a, a strong bond between those lieutenants and captains. Um, I'm just curious if that's something that you've also seen over the past two decades in the British army. Yeah, I think absolutely. It's a huge, it's a huge part of the book. And it's also a huge part of the kind of reception and the debate that is going on around the book at the moment. So I, I, I write again, kind of about how, what had happened before 2003 was that the British Army at that time worshipped seniority, but seniority had in many ways ceased to be an effective uh, proxy for experience because the army had had not had combat experience. And so there was, I think, a huge uh, generational divide. But what is very interesting is where that sat and how it moved. So I think if you were looking, say, at 2003, I think it would be captains and lieutenants. But I think now... It's much higher. And this is what has been fascinating is how, you know, when, when the book has come out, so as again, there's been a lot of attention in the UK very, and really extremely positive in some quarters and very, very critical in others. And, and, the, and the, the most obvious correlate to that is simply age, you know, is simply what level you're at. And from the, I'm just getting an awful lot of, of posts from people in the military and generally up to about colonel. I would say it's so, you know, mid forties, it's very generally extremely positive. And above that, there's clearly a great deal of, of anger about it. And I think, you know, what, where that line sits, I think is, it depends a lot on people's individual experience and also whether they stayed in the military or they left, you know, but, but this idea that there was a, a fundamental difference between an organizer, yeah, the people who joined, perhaps in the 90s, but I think particularly in the, for the Brits, like you know, what was going on in the 80s. I mean, the, the regiment that I write about in, in the beginning of the book spent the entirety of the 1980s without an operational tour. I mean, they just sat in West Germany doing training rotations. And, and that tension is kind of animating. And I think, it, you know, I was, because of the age I was, I suppose my, it was easier for me to kind of sympathize with that. And, you know, it has been suggested as kind of angry young man's book and stuff. And I think there's some there's some merit in those arguments, but that 
that generation of the body is interesting. I think what the question is now is what's what's happening now with it. You know, that because that experience would have passed through and you know what what is where do, where does it sit now? But but I mean that that strikes me as a as a huge issue in any military organization of whatever country that went through those experiences. So I want to turn then to um uh, you know what you what we mentioned earlier and you talk about in the book and and clearly as a as a strong framing mechanism uh which is that this is an exploration of the British military uh but in many ways it's also kind of an exploration of um of dynamics more broadly within Britain uh, within British society. Um can you explain some of the ways that that's the case? Uh, you know, specifically, you sort of you highlighted um, the kind of sibling relationship between you know the U.S. and the U.K. And that's certainly true. I think you know from a military perspective, we're very close. We work very closely. But it's also true more broadly. Um, we're strategic allies, uh, politically very close. Um, but I will say that. When I, so I lived in the UK for five years, with the exception of uh, one year when I was in Afghanistan, uh, in the middle of that. And before I lived in the UK, I I had don't think I had ever even heard the term special relationship, um, which is something that you can't you can't really watch the news in the UK without that. And so no. I also wonder if there isn't if if that if that isn't um, the perceptions about what that means are maybe a little bit different. I, I don't think anybody in the U.S. would disagree that, that the U.K. is one of, if not the closest ally um, of the United States. Um, but we don't fixate on it, I think. in the And I don't mean that in any way sort of pejoratively about the way that Brits do. Um, but I wonder, I wonder how that also plays into it. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And it's worth maybe bringing up some more of, of my own experience here, non, non-military, but I... I had a this this Fulbright scholarship to the US when I was 23, and so I did my journalistic training there. And I, you know, most of my magazine work now is for Americans, so I feel that you know that was a you know fantastic experience for me. And, and certainly the the journalistic tradition that I work in is is an American one. I think that's true. I think it's a classic little sibling relationship. It's certainly true that the United States is much more important for Britain than Britain is for the United States. And maybe the way to to unpick this a bit is to explain a bit about this section at the heart of the book, so about Charge of Knights and, and what had happened there. So the, the Brits had deployed into Iraq in 2003 and had been given responsibility for, for Basra. And I explore in the book, actually, which hadn't really been broken thus far, was that part of the reason that happened was that they didn't have enough spare parts for vehicles to, to deploy further. So getting over the, the border was just what was possible. And Iraq rapidly became very politically toxic at home in the UK, and really, there was a, a loss of control of, of Basra. So um, the real mood music was to withdraw and to get out. And a re- you know, up to kind of 2006, it looked like there was overload with the US, that there was pre-surge. It's what was going to happen there as well. But then when the surge takes place, there's suddenly the, this huge strategic disconnect between what the Americans are doing and what the Brits are doing. And what the Brits do is they make a deal. So it's termed the accommodation. And uh, the Brits found a, a man called Ahmed Fatosi, who was a, a member of the, the Shia militias in Basra and used to as interlocutor. And they struck this deal, which was that they would exchange sequential prisoner releases in exchange for a cessation of attacks on British bases. And the problem was here that the, the leverage was finite. So they only had a certain number of prisoners. And this was kept in a very close hold. But when it was discovered in, in both Central Iraqi and American circles, there was a lot of skepticism about it. And then it, it all fell to pieces in this pretty dramatic sense. And there was meant to be a 
clearance operation that was planned to happen in the summer of 2008. And Maliki jumped the gun in, in March and launched it at, at zero notice. And it ended up with Maliki snubbing the British brigadier because the British general was away. And uh, American troops going into action while British ones were, were kept out. And I think it's, you know, that is... That was kind of the inverse, right? I write in the Atlantic piece. Obviously, this is five years after the British Army arrived, saying we've been to Northern Ireland, that we know what we're doing, you know. And it it was really, it was really brought home, I think, in a pretty sustained and pretty brutal way. But the reason I felt it was important, I tried to write the most comprehensive play by play of that series of events that could be done. So, from the British perspective, from the uh, US perspective, from the Iraqi perspective, you know, I spoke to Petraeus, I spoke to Flynn, who was the, the Marine general who came in. I spoke to a guy who was with a MIT team. And I just felt it needed to be said. You know, it needed to be said what had happened because I think there wasn't really an awareness of it. And that also fits with, with the other thing, which is in many ways the central theme of the book, which is about accountability. In that the, the British, um, I think, you know, there were certainly issues for the US Army, but there were everyone on the military side in the UK who ran that operation was promoted with one exception. And the, the debate has emerged as the book has come out to say, well, this was a political failing and, and all that kind of thing. But I think in a sense, the problem that, or the way I describe it is what happened for Britain was that there was a parallel glut and void of accountability. So there was this extraordinary system in the UK of, of novel probes uh, into actions by junior personnel. So we, and a lot of narrative about that is that they were all vexatious. I don't think that's true. Uh, but it's certainly true that they existed in parallel to this real absence of accountability at a senior level. And I do think that here is where there's a very fruitful comparison with the US uh, in, in how that happened. So so say what happened in, in Afghanistan with McKinnon being fired by Obama, or particularly with the, the Bastion, you know, that would be un- inconceivable in, in Britain, really. And particularly with the, the Battle of Bastion in 2012. So this attack on uh, on this Anglo-American facility, US Marine Corps forced two generals to retire and their British counterparts were, were promoted. And I thought that, again, was you know something that was really key to lay down here that there is a difference here in the way that the British military and the American military regarded command accountability. And I just wanted to to kind of lay that out. Okay. So you, you mentioned that you've had um, sort of uh, very positive responses from some quarters and, and very, uh, well, I don't know how negative responses from, from other quarters. Um, you also, when we, before we started recording, I told you that I had kind of done some digging and I, I had seen a, a 2019 publishing date from, from a different publisher. Uh, and you explained to me kind of what happened. I wonder if you can kind of talk about that. Cause it sounds like there was some politics involved in whether or not this book could even be published. Yeah. I mean, certainly at, at one stage, it looked like it really was not going to be. And um, I'm very, yeah, very happy to talk about that. So the book was sold at proposal stage in 2015. Uh, there was a lot of interest. So five major British publishers bidded for it. Uh, I went with William Heinemann, that's part of Random House, and I spent three years writing it. Um, I had a visiting fellowship at Oxford while I was doing that. And um, it's certainly true, undoubtedly, that my reporting had, had stirred a lot of disquiet in the army. You know, I had to do a lot of fact-checking, a lot of right-to-reply, um, which certainly had, had unnerved a lot of people. But what I would say is I think ultimately that was where the rigour of the book came from. You know, the, the fact that if you look at it now, there's almost 100 pages of notes in the background that in every case I've tried to get everyone's views but it was meant to be published in 2019 and um, then shortly beforehand my publisher was threatened by an academic at Oxford where I had a a visiting fellowship a guy with fairly close relations with the army 
And in response, uh, Random House demanded that I submit the manuscript to the British Ministry of Defence, and I also implement copy approval, which is so that everyone mentioned would agree in writing with everything that was said about me. And there are books about the British Army that are uh, that are written. They're called authorised books. So what happens is that you sign a contract with the Ministry of Defence, you get access, but in return they get um, essentially to see it before it's published. And I felt largely because of the essentially the American journalistic tradition I've been trained in, that was a very problematic way of doing this. And so that, that had never been on the cards for this from, from the get-go. And so this all kicked off, and then uh, we negotiated, my agent and I, but um, it wouldn't, didn't move their position. Random House then cancelled my contract. They asked me to pay my advance back. They asked me to pay their legal fees. Um, I then got uh, a coalition of, I think, eight press freedom organisations, uh, including Reporters Without Borders, Index on Censorship, European Centre for Press and Media Freedom. Um, they all wrote to the publisher, didn't move their position. And so I gave the material to The Guardian, who then wrote about it. Um, and it then, Scribe, who uh, an Australian publisher and had um, a track record of having been essentially making very brave editorial decisions, took it on. So it had, um, it had a very difficult gestation. And I think, you know, certainly I didn't do everything perfectly and the stuff I couldn't have done differently. But I think what is true is that the the story that the struggle to publish this book is in some ways a distillation of the central argument of the book that that the British military did not achieve its objectives, but more significantly than that, then Steinmead attempts to have a, an open and honest debate about those kind of things. And I think you know I'm happy to talk about that. I think at this, at this stage though, the the significant thing is that it's published, and actually I kind of you know regard the discussion that's going on about it as as very positive. Like it's certainly it's certainly true. I think in Britain to, to raise any criticism of the army is a, is a kind of quasi-treasonous act in, in our culture. Um, but I actually think it's really important that, that this seems to be stimulating a debate and everyone's entitled to their view. You know, it was always going to be a controversial book and, and these things have happened. So, so I think it's good that it's come out, but it's, yeah, it's been a long road and a, and a challenging one from a writer's perspective. I think, um, to be honest, I'm, I don't know that I, after, after finishing it would even characterize it as a criticism of the army. Um, sure. It, you know, it's critical at, at various points, but it's, that's not its purpose. You know, it, 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 it feels to me and, and, you know, maybe I'm ascribing, you know, too much to, to, to its intent, although I don't think I am, but we're in 2021 now, you know, we're approaching the 20 year anniversary of 9-11. The past two decades have been largely characterized by uh, these conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, this is an opportune time to sort of, like I said, take a knee and reflect. At the same time, you know, it's also an opportunity to then look forward and and to chart a path uh, for a service that, you know, remains important and influential uh, to chart a path that, um is a positive one. And, and, and I, it, it felt to me like even in places where it was critical that that still was sort of its guiding, uh, guiding purpose. If you look at it from that perspective is, is, is the British army at a, at sort of a, a decision point and not to put, you know, uh, you know, too, um, too fine a point on it, but is this a is this a major pivot point the way that I think listeners you know more familiar with the U.S. military would say has been the case for the past three years or so with U.S. services kind of relooking what is our purpose and 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 how are we going about achieving that? 
I think it absolutely is. And I, I'm touched that that's your your impression for reading the book because I think I think that conspires with with mine as well, or agrees with, with with mine as well. I mean, ultimately, the army was an institution that was important to me, that it was important to a lot of people I knew, but that I felt that it was served by trying to write something that was the best approximation to truth that that could be done. You know, that one could engage with this in a in a sensible and thoughtful way, but also not pulling any punches. I think I think what's fascinating is you're American, you're not British, and you have some distance on this. And it's 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 been very striking you know, in our culture how there's a kind of reflexive and I think highly problematic idea that anything other than straight genuflection of the army is, is problematic. I think in Britain certainly a discussion is happening. But my feeling is that again the guiding principle at the at the top is institutional preservation that people you know what can we do to stop ourselves getting cut and to to fight the battle with the navy for resources and, you know there's there's clearly it's been huge expenditure on, on britain's aircraft carriers over the past uh, five years and that i think the navy feels that this is in some ways an opportunity to, to take a march on the army in terms of resources a suggestion that the, the first sea lord the head of the navy may become chief of the defense staff i think my my sense is that it is clearly a moment of discussion and import, but that the discussion is not happening in the way that it should. That there should be an open and really, as you say, it's it's twenty years, like a really forthright and open and 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 kind of non rose tinted, but also non uh, over dramatized discussion of of what has happened, um, and. My hope, I suppose, once all, once all the, the maelstrom of commentary has perhaps settled with this a little bit, will be that, that the book will perhaps precipitate that. And it, but again, I think it's so generational because in terms of the mail that I'm getting, you know, from people, you know, from majors and stuff like that saying, you know, I don't agree with everything, but I think this is really important that someone wrote this, you know, is, is the line that I'm getting from there. And then from people who are not really from military people, and I've had, you know, two really thoughtful and, and largely very complimentary letters from from two stars um in the in the past two weeks but i think there is a sort of uh area journalistic military environ of an older generation that is very skeptical of this of this engaging and of this happening so we'll, we'll have to see what happens but i think in general the way the way it's described in one military forum so the British military has this overriding phobia of any of its dirty laundry being washed in public, this idea that everything has to be done privately. And actually, I think largely informed by my professional experiences in the US, I think it's good to talk, it's good to talk publicly, you know? And it, and in some ways, the some of the, the way that I wrote the book, that I wanted it to be gripping, that I wanted it to be engaging, was to try and, and sort of throw a hand grenade and, and precipitate that debate, because I didn't think it was going to happen otherwise. Well, there are, um, you know, a, a handful of books and a growing number, but it's still a, a kind of a small handful of books that there have been many, many books about Iraq and Afghanistan and, and U.S. and U.K. militaries and other militaries uh, operations in both countries. But there are a small handful that are kind of, um, you know, particularly important, I think. And uh, I, you know, in, you know, at the risk of sounding too over complimentary, I, I felt that you know, that, that spirit was sort of in, in this book as I, as I read it, our MWI's um, sort of followers, readers, and listeners are mainly American. Um, but we have a very sizable minority of, 
uh, readers in other Anglophone allied and partnered countries, uh, particularly the UK and Australia, Canada. Um, you know, for 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 UK listeners, certainly it's available now, and I think you know there will be some some natural interest. But but I'd definitely encourage listeners, non-British listeners, uh, listeners that you know from a, from say the U.S. military community, to check it out because a many of them have worked with uh, worked with the Brits either operationally or during training. Uh, but B, it also, um, you know, it, it hits home, I think from a U.S. perspective as well, because you see some, we see a lot of, uh, not everything certainly, but there are a lot of things that, that mirror our own experiences and our conversations that we either are having or should be having as well. So, um, it's a, it is a great book. Um, I, I really appreciate you, uh, well, all the time that you put into writing it, but also taking some time to, uh, to talk about it on, on the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me, and it, it's really great to have like a, a mature and grown-up discussion about it because that's not a not <laughs> the exclusive way that it's happened happened over on this side of the Atlantic. But I think, yeah, I, I'm very touched that you say that, and I, yeah, it would be great. You know, part of the one of the most gratifying things actually about uh, the Times' publication has been the mail that I've been getting from people and people saying this is significant to them. I had a fascinating letter from a from a vietnam vet an american vietnam vet over the weekend talking about how it meant stuff to him so so thank you it's, it's been great to be on the podcast and yeah best wishes for all your work going forward great thanks simon Hey, thank you so much for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. Thanks again. Thanks again.